We're going to um, turn to our reading now. It's uh, from 1 Kings chapter 18, reading from verse 20. In a second, Jonathan Bailey from uh, Baptist Church in Caterham in the Valley uh, is going to come and explain this passage to us. So it's 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20 to 40. And in the church Bible, it's on page 359. Uh, If you don't have a church Bible or if you need a Bible, please just put your hand up so uh, Grace uh, and Dave can come around with one for you. Brilliant. Page 359. 1 Kings chapter 18. Great. So the context is there's been a massive drought in Old Testament Israel. And the drought has come because of a disobedient king refusing to listen to the word of God. And the drought is there to bring God's people back to himself. Elijah the prophet has been on the run and he appears to the king and says, let's have it out. And this is what happens. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. That's the prophets of Baal, the false god that Ahab worshipped. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God And I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of the Lord your God, the name of of your God, sorry, uh, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they'd made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time came for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it, large enough to hold two seers of seeds. He arranged the wood, 
cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Jonathan's now going to come and uh, explain this passage to us. Where are you, Jonathan? There you are. Brilliant. If you could have your Bible, if you could keep your Bibles open at that point, that'd be great. Slightly, I thought I was going to have a hymn to get this thing on me. So bear with me for a moment. I think it's that way around. It's good to be with you, by the way. Thank you uh, for inviting me again. I did a bit of a deal with, with Phil on this occasion. Uh, we've got Josh preaching down in the valley this morning with us. Have I got to press that button? Are we on? We're working. Excellent. Uh, and you got me. So I think we got the deal. But as I say, really good to uh, come and join you uh, again this morning. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Aladdin. He, he of course, was the one with the, the magic lamp. And, of course, you just had to rub it a little. Uh, and somebody would pop out and you would have three wishes. What would we do if we had three wishes? I wonder what we would ask for. You know, the luxury cruise that you've always dreamt of. Maybe the kind of body or health that you once enjoyed. A successful career, perhaps. Or even the return of a loved one. Maybe more time or a chance to go back and correct some of the mistakes that you've made in the past. Of course, if you were really sneaky... You, you would ask for three more wishes. The amazing thing, of course, is that there is somebody out there who wants us to tell him what we need. 
someone who has the power to give us anything. Even as you're thinking about your, your real lives week this week, what do you want God to do? It's been good already to pray uh, with you about some of those things this morning. And I want to talk about prayer. And the question I want us to address is, uh, what should we ask God for? How, how do we bring our prayers and our requests into line with what God wants to give us? But first, uh, what is prayer? Of course, at a very basic level, it is simply talking to God. And therefore, it's vital. Do come along. I'll urge you, just as Phil did, to your prayer meeting here on Tuesday night. If we claim to be a Christian, we are saying essentially that God is our friend. And and as with any kind of friendship, of course, communication is vital. We simply cannot really claim to be friends with somebody uh, and then not bother talking to them. Of course, Christians are in a relationship with God, but it's sure most of us recognize it's not an equal relationship. God is our our saviour through the Lord Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our King. Uh, We are completely dependent upon him. We need him. But he, of course, is not dependent on us in, in any way. Through, Though he loves us, he loves us dearly, and he cares for us, God does not actually need us. He, of course, is the perfect father. We're his children. We are chosen by him. We're adopted by him. And in some ways, we're, we're, we're bought by him. Jesus' death on the cross was a ransom paying the price to set us free from the grasp of the enemy. So when we pray, we essentially do four different things. We talk to God. We first, perhaps, we thank him for what he's done for us, for the promises that he's made to us. And then, of course, prayer includes praise and worship. We've done that a bit through song already this morning. God is worthy of our worship. He is utterly holy. He is perfect. He deserves our devotion. And then, of course, it includes confession or repentance because we we fail God where Uh, Not always, of course, the obedient children that he wants us to be. Saying sorry, acknowledging our weaknesses. It's going to be an ongoing thing for us as Christians. And then, of course, we, we, we ask him for things. We need God. We need him to do things for us. We need him to protect us. We need him, of course, to change us. I don't know if this has appeared on the screen. Excellent, I can't see it from where I am, but it spells out the word wrapped. And that, according to Google Dictionary, means completely fascinated or absorbed by what one is seeing or hearing. Other words you could use are fascinated, enthralled, spellbound, captivated, riveted, or or gripped. And of course, when we are gripped by something, when we're captivated by God... Our relationship will be one of repenting. It will be one of asking, of praising, and of thanking. We will be wrapped. But what is it that we should be asking God for? Is it simply a case of kind of, thanks God, yeah, you're, you're really great. I'm sorry I'm not, but please give me that new car or that new pay rise that I've been looking for. Or, or maybe recovering from X or Y that I'm suffering with. 
Is God just a, a divine vending machine that if we press the right buttons, say the right words, out will pop the answers that we're looking for? Of course, God does care about our individual. He does care about our, our, our personal needs. He cares much more than we give him credit for. But is that really how prayer works? Well, that was the problem in Elijah's day. There was no shortage of worship when Elijah was around. We've read a bit of that already this morning. People were extremely devout. They were sincere. But of course, their problem was they were focusing on the wrong God. They were focusing in the wrong direction because they didn't know the true God. Elijah first appeared at the time of Ahab. We've heard a little bit about that already this morning. Uh, And he was the king of the northern part of Israel uh, in about 900 BC. To get a little bit of the background, I wondered if you would turn back in your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. I'm not entirely sure what page that might be in your church Bibles. 357, is that about right? I'm going to read from verse 29 of 1 Kings 16. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal uh, that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all of Israel before him. Things Things were worse than ever. They were very religious. There's no question about their religiosity. But you don't please God by being religious. Let's continue, verse 34. In, Abraham, in Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram. He set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now that might look like a kind of interesting, uh, sort of unnecessary footnote, But rebuilding Jericho's fortress was something that God had specifically told the Israelites that they were not to do. It was forbidden that they should do that. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 6. Chapter 17 here. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Except at my word. Now, this was God's judgment against Israel, just as he had promised. Uh, And we can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 11. I think the verse will appear on the screen. It says, be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will produce no yield. And you will soon perish from the good land that the Lord is giving you. This is the warning that God had given them years earlier. And of course, as all good parents know, when we warn our children, we must be willing to carry out 
the promised punishment. So we shouldn't be surprised when we read here uh, in 1 Kings that God sends Elijah to tell Ahab and Israel of the consequences of their behavior. There was going to be a drought. Well, let's get forward now to chapter 18. And it says there at the beginning of the chapter, after a long time, in the third year, so this is the third year of the drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. There was three years with no rain. There is famine in the land. And then Elijah asks uh, Obadiah, another true believer who is in touch with the king, to let Ahab know of his arrival. Ahab, of course, is not happy about this. He thinks the famine is all Elijah's fault. But in verse 18, Elijah reminds Ahab that it was he who had abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now, Baal, of course, was a, it was a made-up god, a bit like perhaps some of the classic uh, Greek gods of Zeus, uh, etc. Now, ironically, though, Baal was, was known as the god of fertility, the one who perhaps was, would be expected to major on bringing rain. Well, he was also one of the gods of the Canaanites. They were the people that lived in the land before the Israelites got there. And some of the Israelites, as we can see here, had gone over completely to Baal worship. And a lot of them were still just a bit unsure. They were seeing some following Baal, some following the true God. And then they get this, this challenge from Elijah here in verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Well, the people were not focused on the true God. They were not focused on the God of their ancestors. They were wavering, some of them, between two uh, different opinions. And of course, the message we get is that God does not want waverers. God wants people who are firmly confident in him. So so Elijah sets up this challenge. Some of you will be pretty familiar uh, with this passage. We've got the 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, 400 prophets of Asherah, and they're gathered together on Mount Carmel, a real place, uh, a real mountain beside the Mediterranean Sea. And with them, there's this crowd of Israelites and perhaps others watching, maybe thousands of people uh, together on that day. And Elijah says, we'll prepare an altar. We'll each kill a bull uh, and sacrifice it to our respective gods. You call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of the Lord. And then the test is, the one who sends the fire, he's the true God. And the people essentially say, yep, that sounds like a pretty good arrangement. And of course, the prophets of Baal, they went first, they prepared their altar, they put the bull on it, and then they call on their God. And the next bit of the story really is quite amusing in many respects. They called on the name of the Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they said. They shouted. But of course, there was no response no one answered. So Elijah then begins to make a bit of fun of them, really. Shout louder, he says. Maybe he's asleep. They, they, they all get into a bit of a frenzy. They start cutting each other. They're shouting louder and louder. But nothing happens, of course, because Baal doesn't exist. Verse 29. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid uh, attention. 
So then it's Elijah's turn. He prepares his altar, and then he digs a trench around it, saturates everything with water. He's not going to make things easy for his God. Three times it says they soak the wood, they soak the ball, they soak the whole altar. The trench is filled with water. And then he prays. And that's where I want us to focus this morning. Verse 36, he said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning hearts back again. Well, that's Elijah's prayer on that particular day. And I want us to look in to see what that prayer tells us about Elijah himself and what it tells us about his priorities. What did he really want? What does it tell us about God? How can it, how can it help us perhaps in our own prayers? Perhaps especially during your Real Lives Week coming up. Because this is a prayer of request. There is no specific thanksgiving in this prayer. There's no specific praise. There's no specific confession there. And Elijah essentially wants God to do just one thing. He wants God to send the fire and burn up the sacrifice. That is what he wants God to do. But is it, as you look at the text, as you look at what he actually says, is that what Elijah is asking for? It's not. He doesn't even mention the fire in his prayer. He just tells God why he wants the fire. That might seem a little bit odd, uh, but as we think about our community, and I trust, you know, I'm part of this same community in Caterham, we think about our society, we think about our, our mission to the lost. This is exactly the kind of prayer that the Christian church should be praying today. If Elijah had three uh, wishes, he's essentially given them all up in one go. He wants people to understand three different things. Firstly, uh, Elijah wants them to know that God is the Lord. He wants them to know that God is the Lord. He says it twice uh, in this prayer, so it must be important. He says, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And then he says a bit further down, answer me, Lord, answer me. So that these people will know that you, Lord, are God. Now I wonder what you maybe think of Elijah. He he sounds a little bit like uh, one of those children that sort of comes home from school and says he's arranged a bit of a fight. Tells his dad that he's arranged a fight between him and, and his friend's dad. They've been having this bit of an argument in the playground, and one said to the other, well, my dad's stronger than your dad, and the other one says, well, okay, let's prove it. We we don't get any kind of indication in this story that God had actually asked Elijah to do this. I mean, God could be thinking, well, hang on a minute. There's 850 on the other side. There's only one of you, and now you've got to make all the wood and everything soaking wet. What kind of chance have I got? But of course it's not like that at all. Elijah knows his God. He says, you're the God of Abraham, you're the God of Isaac and Israel. He he knows about God's promises to Abraham to make a nation that will worship him forever. Elijah knows that Isaac uh, was born miraculously to someone who was barren. He knows how God rescued his people Israel 
from slavery in Egypt. He, he knows that his God, this God, is the real God. He's the God of creation. He's the God of all history. Elijah knows God. And he knows how easy it would be for God to send fire and burn up this sacrifice. But his main aim, his prayer is that others will know this God. Is that our prayer? Is that your prayer as you approach this week ahead? That others will know the Lord Jesus, the Creator. The God Elijah prayed to, of course, is the God of the Bible. He's, he's the one to whom everybody is accountable, whether we believe in him or not. He's the God who came down to earth as a human for the sole purpose, of course, of redeeming his people. This is the God who put his spirit in the hearts of all who turned to him, enabling them to live lives that will glorify him. This is the God who will one day return to safely gather his people home. This is the God who will bring justice to everybody who has rejected him. He's the God who says what he's going to do. Is it our prayer that people will know that the Lord is God? There are a couple of angles to this, perhaps at least a couple. Do we want people to be warned about God's coming judgment? Just as kind of smoke alarms at home give us time to get out of the house to safety before the fire sets in? Do we want people to be warned of the coming judgment and its certainty that everybody needs to be ready for? What happens to the prophets, as you perhaps noticed at the end of our reading, verse 40, which obviously is awful, but that's a picture of what happens or what everybody faces if they reject the living God. And then on the other hand, do we want people to know the wonderful peace that comes from submitting to the loving authority of this king of creation? Because at the moment around us, very few people know that peace. Very few people are ready to meet their maker. Now, I know you've enjoyed one or two baptisms recently. We celebrate those with you. Uh, Baptist Church, in the next couple of months, we're looking forward to uh, at least four different baptisms people who have heeded that warning and found safety in the arms of Jesus. God is still at work. Well, let's give him thanks for that. He's saving sinners, and we celebrate these things together. But how many people across the whole town of Catrum know that peace? Maybe a thousand or so, I don't know. It's certainly not for us to, to judge. But it leaves 20,000 or more out there that that don't. 95% perhaps of the population of Caterham is living uh, without God and therefore heading for an eternity without him. Just think about them for a moment. In love. It's desperate. They include many, many religious people. There'll be some Muslims. There'll be some Buddhists. There'll be some Hindus. There'll be many who actually call themselves Christians. There will be agnostics. There will be atheists. As I say, don't get me wrong, I'm not judging them in any way. I'm certainly not saying that I'm better than any of them. Christians should never think like that, never want to give that impression. But we must be like Elijah. As far as Elijah was concerned, people either knew the Lord was God 
or they didn't. And he was thinking about people who were trying to get kind of one foot in each camp. Hedge their bets, for example. Maybe that applies to some of us. I don't know many of you here this morning. Are you wavering between two different opinions? Well, our prayer must be that you will know that the Lord is God. That you will know that the Lord is God. Put both feet in the camp of Jesus. Give him everything. Get to know him uh, better as he reveals himself to you in the Bible. Serve him wholeheartedly. Well, let's look at the other two aspects of Elijah's prayer a bit more uh, briefly now. He prays, secondly, that people will know that he, that Elijah, that is, is God's servant. If you were a neutral observer, uh, as many, of course, were on Mount Carmel on that particular day in history, who would you think were the true servants of the Lord just by uh, looking around you? You'd look at all these prophets of Baal and of Asherah. These were people who dined at the table of the queen, Jezebel. We're told that in verse 19. They would have looked fit. They would have looked healthy. They would be the ones who were dressing well. They were the servants of the king of the land. They had his stamp of authority. And, of course, there's hundreds of them. But then, of course, you look at Elijah, on the other hand. You've just got one man. He's been on the run for three years. He wears camel's hair, and his lunch consists of locusts and honey. Which one would you think was God's true servant? Well, it's pretty similar to that in today's world. Society at large does not respect genuine Christians. Those who hold to the truth of the, the, the Bible are generally dismissed as bigoted fundamentalists. Even at the recent election... Parliamentary candidates were being scrutinized by, for, for their kind of opinions and for their beliefs. And those that, uh, for example, opposed gay marriage or abortion, they were labeled as, as unsuitable for public service. Of course, in many countries, the opposition uh, is much more physical and much more violent. So let's be praying that people will see that Christians, those who love and follow, the one true God, pray that people will know that they are his servants. But I wonder how how are people likely to know that? What are they going to see that's different in God's people that will show them that difference? Well, only, of course, if we display the fruit of the Spirit, if we are the people who are loving, joyful, uh, gentle, good, patient, peaceful, faithful, self-controlled, And as Elijah puts it, doing all these things at God's command. It needs to be reflected in our lives, not just in what we kind of say we believe. Because if they're not changed by the gospel, we can't expect anybody to see or acknowledge that we are God's servants. I wonder how many of you were first attracted to Jesus by perhaps seeing something different in in somebody else. Not necessarily through some, what, what somebody else told you, but perhaps just seeing the difference in the way that they live their lives. I certainly did uh, before I became a believer. Well, let's be praying for one another. Let's pray that we will be like Jesus. People will know that we are his servants doing the things we do because we are 
his. And please do pray for uh, church leaders. Pray that those who preach the truth of the gospel will be recognized as the servants of the true God. In the Christian church today, sadly, and we see more news, uh, even in the Anglican church this, this, this week, some of them, people are confused. There are false servants, and not everybody knows which ones are the true ones. There are many who no longer stand for the, the truths of the teachings of the Bible, of the apostles as laid down uh, in Scripture. Pray that people will know the difference between a false servant and a true one. Well, Elijah's prayer is that people will know that the Lord is God and that people will know that he is God's servant. And then finally, Elijah prays that the people will know that it's God who's turning their hearts back again. Because what happens when Elijah has finished praying? Verse 38, at that point, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil And also licked up the water in the trench. Who did that? Well, of course, it was God who did that. You might find, if you look at various different commentaries, that uh, people have come up with a number of different theories for what happened on that day. They say, well, maybe the water wasn't really water that they put around uh, that trench. Maybe it was actually paraffin. Other people say, well, actually, I'm sure it coincided with a bit of a lightning strike. Maybe. Or maybe uh, Elijah was using a bit of a glass to kind of focus the sun's rays uh, and create a spark. Well, all of that's nonsense. People will go to extraordinary lengths to deny that a miracle-performing God could be involved. Well, Elijah's prayer is that people will see that it was God. He wants everyone to see that God is at work, that it's God who's changing people's lives, turning their hearts back again. I've heard, I'm sure you have, several testimonies from individuals whose hearts have been changed. Who did that? Did they have the power kind of to turn their own hearts? As we reach out, even in the coming week, do we look to them to change their own hearts? But it's only God who's going to change their hearts. We were, and people out there are as dead as some of the characters we read in the Bible, as Lazarus, for example. It's God who must turn hearts back to him. Remember when Jesus' disciples started to realize that he was uh, the Messiah, he said to them, it is only because God has shown you that you understand this. It is only because God has opened your eyes. Any believer, and that includes all of us here if we're believers this morning, any believer is only a believer because of what God has done. God is in the business of turning hearts back. And our prayer should be that people will know that. That they will see that the miracle of change hearts and they will say, only God could have done that. Let's read again from verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God 
and that you are turning hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Then all the people saw this, and they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, if God hadn't answered that prayer, Elijah would have been executed. I don't think there's any question about that. But of course, he wasn't worried about his own life. He was only concerned about God's reputation. Elijah was a great man. He was a true servant of the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. But as we close, I just want us to turn to James in the New Testament, who gives a slightly different of Elijah. I think the words again will come up on the screen. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He was just a normal bloke, just like we are. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly. What was it that made uh, Elijah a great servant of God? Was it the miracles that, that he did? Was it the fire that came down from heaven? None of that. He was just a human being like us, a man who put his trust in God, a man who prayed earnestly. Of course, we too can be those people. Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for prayer. We thank you that we have access to the Almighty. We can come boldly to his throne of grace because we have one who intercedes for us, one who has paid the price, one who has become that high priest whose blood forgives us, cleanses us of all sin and allows us to come close to you. Father, we confess that uh, none of us takes advantage of that privilege as we should and as we could. But Father, we thank you that we can come to you at any moment. We can ask your forgiveness. We can bow uh, before you. And you delight to listen to your people's prayers. Father, we pray that you would change each one of us, whether uh, we're already believers We pray that you draw us each closer to you, that we would be those who pray earnestly. And if we've not yet made that commitment to you, Father, open our eyes by your grace that we might know you for ourselves, that we might know that peace, that we might be drawn from that danger. Father, we ask these things for your honor and glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.